What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. It's a national progressive town hall meeting for the next hour with uh, Representative Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. He is a vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, one of the top progressives in America, I would say. And uh, we're very happy to have you with us, Congressman. Oh, and his website, Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And Twitter handle is Repro Kana. I knew I was forgetting something. Representative Kana, great having you with us. Before we pick up the phone calls, I'm curious what's at the top of your mind right now. I'm glad to be on. My introduction keeps getting better and better every week. So I, <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I, uh, the, uh, you know, it, it's a challenging time for uh, progressives. I mean, uh, not going to sugarcoat it. It's been a pretty disappointing week. We were expecting that the Senate would act on Build Back Better. The president had come to uh, Pramila, myself, others, and said, uh, vote for the infrastructure bill. I have the votes on the framework in the Senate. Uh, my understanding is he had the commitments from Mansion and Cinema, and now you see them dragging their feet on voting for something. So we need to, in my view, have this vote. And just call the bluff, uh, have an up or down vote yeah. early January. And then the parliamentarian, I mean, this unelected parliamentarian making a ruling saying that immigration policy doesn't have an impact on the budget. I mean, I don't understand the logic of it when you're going to create people who are going to work and create taxes, obviously has a uh, budgetary impact. And then, you know, voting rights, uh, stalling and Senator Cinema spokesperson saying, She's not willing uh, to reconsider the filibuster. So uh, it's been a challenging uh, week. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Um, and it's one of the reasons why, uh, in my opinion, people need to be calling their senators right now and, and saying, don't you guys even think about going on vacation until you've passed voting rights and build back better. Um, but anyhow. All right. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Uh, Absolutely. Bruce in Petaluma, California, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Good morning and uh, happy uh, holidays to both of you guys. Thank you. My question, or my, yeah, it's a question. Um, you know, during World War II, if, if there was a Nazi involved in, um, you know, the government, they would have kicked the guy out right away or arrested him or whatever. But here we have all these Trump appointees still in, the, in, our, uh, in our government. And um, I, I can't understand why uh, President Biden doesn't just clean house and get rid of every single one of those appointees. They've been put there to drag their feet and to not do their jobs. That's the reason they're there. Yeah, and I'm wondering about uh, Christopher Ray at the FBI. So, anyhow, Congressman? Well, well, Bruce, I I agree with you that all the political appointees need to be removed. The president is trying to do that. You know, with with DeJoy, I think, uh, at Postmaster, he just, if you look just a few weeks ago, he's announced uh, new board members who will be able to replace him. And I think they're systematically going through trying to get people appointed. Of course, Senate has been incredibly slow in confirming people that has uh, slowed things down, but they probably need to prioritize even more those positions that don't have Senate confirmation. And I agree with you, everyone 
should be replaced, uh, who was there as a political appointee for, for Trump. Antonio in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, you are on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, first and foremost, thank you, Representative Kana, for your advocacy and press, uh, progressivism in the House. I wanted to ask, I actually spoke to you when Build Back Better was $3.5 trillion. So I wanted, to, I wanted to ask, first and foremost, do you think that Build Back Better will pass in, at its gutted state? Do you think it will even matter in terms of the 22 midterms keeping Democrats elected in the House and the Senate? I do think it's troubling that we haven't been able to pass it yet when the president had a clear commitment uh, on his framework. I do think it's very important for us to pass it because we've been talking about this for eight months. And this is the president's signature initiative along with the infrastructure bill. And for us to not pass anything, I think just looks ineffective and weak. So uh, do, I'm not sure it will all have an impact right uh, up to the before the midterm, but some of it will. I mean, giving people a child tax credit of 300 bucks a month will, increasing their wage will uh, with the earned income tax credit, lowering prescription drug costs will. So I think this is a must-pass bill. Joe, in Cranston, Rhode Island, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Congressman Ro Connor, uh, I uh, live in Rhode Island. I'm in Congressman Langevin's district. And uh, I'm fresh back from D.C. marching with uh, Reverend uh, Barber and Reverend Theo Harris with the Poor People's Campaign. We were there to support the Build Back Better Act. Uh, my question goes to messaging with, uh, with uh, progressives in general. And I want to know why we don't have an equivalent to CPAC. Why are we? Why is there not a uh, mass organizational meeting that uh, you know, that coordinates and apostolizes people to uh, go out and push progressive values and progressive benefits? So it's a great question. It's actually a great idea. First of all, thank you for being out there with Reverend Barber on the Poor People's Campaign. I mean, he's a uh, a moral leader in talking about why this will help uh, low wealth individuals and why that's the uh, key priority. But you're right. We don't have uh, the, that kind of infrastructure with the uh, progressive movement, and we should. I mean, a lot of the infrastructure is candidate-specific. Uh, we have some infrastructure with the House Progressive Caucus. But I, I think if the groups came together, uh, some of the progressive groups, and I'm going to suggest this to them, to organize a progressive summit conference every year, uh, you're absolutely right that that could generate momentum and organizing energies. That's a great suggestion. Tony in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Oh, hello, uh, and happy holidays to uh, Representative Connor and, and, and Tom Hartman. I love your program. Um, uh, my question concerns universal child care credit going through the states rather than going through a federal program. Do you fear that Republican governors basically obstruct the program and basically do what they did to the ACA, for example. Uh, thank you. Tony, I uh, think that's always a risk. I don't know the data about how many governors didn't hand out the child tax credit for the last six months. My guess is it's a harder thing to, to, to hold back because you're literally depriving families uh, of $300 a month. But it's always a risk. It's better to, to try to do things universally. But uh, it seems to me that that was we did it this way because that's what would get the votes of uh, the broad uh, Democratic caucus. Sean in Davenport, Iowa, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Hey, thank you for taking my call again, um, Representative. Um, as a parent, I woke up to an email from the school district about a nationwide TikTok school threat. Um, I would like to get your thoughts, and then what kind of action? Could the federal government take against these social media threats at school children? It's a huge issue, Sean. Thank you for raising it. And I represent a district in Silicon Valley, so it's particularly uh, relevant to me. Uh, one, uh, we need to have massive more regulation on Instagram and, and, and Facebook. I mean, the idea that they know that their product is causing suicide, depression, harassment, and they're continuing to sell it. Uh, is unconscionable. We would never let any other company sell something that is knowingly harming minors. Second, uh, we ought to be removing speech that is an incitement to violence, 
uh, or a clear threat of violence, particularly on minors. Uh, right now, there is way too broad uh, protection under Section 230. So uh, there needs to be reform. We're actually working on legislation, and I appreciate you raising the issue. Is there any concern in Congress that uh, TikTok, while, while China, uh, I believe, does not allow Facebook to operate in, in China, that TikTok is actually a China-based product? And that may have, there may be some kind of political or geopolitical concern there? Or am I being there is, xenophobic I and paranoid? <laughs> no, I, I think there's a legitimate concern, which is that they're collecting data because we don't have an Internet Bill of Rights or anything that says you have to have affirmative consent before you give data. So TikTok is sucking up all this data on all these uh, young people who are largely the platform users. And we don't know what's going to be what that data could be used for by the China Chinese government if they got their hands on it. Yeah, it is it is a, a remarkable difference. Congressman Ro Khanna, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, representing the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives, with us for the hour in our National Progressive Town Hall meeting. Congressman Khanna's website: Khanna K H A N N A dot House dot gov. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Henrik in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Hello, sirs. How are you? I'm... Got a quick question to ask about propaganda. Is anyone going to do anything? I don't know how many people uh, hear Tom Hartman's show versus how many people listen to the propaganda on CNN, Fox News, but is anyone going to do anything about this? Because I'm assuming 90% of people are getting misinformed, and there are a few of us who uh, are thinking critically about this of the population. Well, Henry, you raised an incredible central point, which is that the channels of distribution of news and information uh, are heavily skewed and that the left doesn't have the same infrastructure that the right does, both in terms of radio, as, as Tom has written about, but also in terms of mobilization on social media and in terms of uh, the effectiveness of cable. And so uh, I think the only way to overcome propaganda is to build out the communications infrastructure on the left uh, that will reach more people. Yeah, we're, we're, we're working on that. By the way, Free Speech TV is now on DISH, on Direct. This is our, you know, the progressive television network that we're on. On DISH, on Direct, obviously on the Internet. They're on Roku. They're on Apple TV. They're on Hulu. Um, they're, they're, you know, like a dozen different platforms. And so, you know, they're, they're growing like a weed. That's, a, that's the good news. Uh, they don't publicize themselves. That's the bad news. But, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to promote that. Anyhow, Paul in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Representative Khan. Hi. Yeah, I'd like to uh, put a question out. Uh, not, not only do we need effective ways of reaching people, once we do get a message out there, it needs to be uh, um, heard well and clearly. And um, one of the things that uh, people on the right have put out there is that Joe Manchin is a moderate senator. Um, I don't hear of any moderate Republicans, uh, uh, Kinzinger, uh, um, others, uh, Lincoln Project people, as being moderate. Uh, um, they're just uh, uh, disaffected or, or other words that don't really have a bite to it. I think we need to, uh, some equal time on that uh, to put that out there. Uh, and you don't need an organization to do that. Um, it can just be a grassroots thing that comes up from yourself and anyone else with a mic. Okay. Well, I, I think if your point is that we shouldn't be calling them moderate, uh, I, I agree. I mean, they're at the outlier of our party. I mean, everyone else agrees but them. And my view is that we ought to force the vote, and the president ought to go look the American public in the eye and say, I, I had the commitment of these senators, I had the commitment of the House, uh, and not voting for this is betraying the country, betraying me, betraying the party. Uh, and I think it's time for strength and, and just have the vote. Do you think that'll happen? Do you, uh, for, do you have any insights? We have 20 seconds. Do you have any insights into whether the House is going to go into recess today? And whether this is... Uh, yeah, no, I think the House is... is I mean the Senate. I'm sorry. I don't. I, I think it would be a very big mistake uh, for the Senate to go into recess, but uh, I think it's still up in the air. Uh, my own sense is that the time for 
niceties is over and we just need to there needs to be strength and, and let's let's have the vote. Yeah, time to take names and kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> Representative Rokana with us for the hour taking your calls. You can find his website at Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep Rokana. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House. We'll be back with more of your questions for Congressman Khanna right after this. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back. Representative Kana taking your calls for the hour. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Paul, you're on the air with Rep. Kana. Thank you, Tom. My question in sum, how can we move forward with a progressive agenda at the federal level when the opposition party is clearly pursuing uh, a fascist agenda at both the state and federal level? Uh, and I ex- offer Exhibit A, uh, Build Back Better, which has been mentioned languishing in the United States Senate where all creatures, great and small, go to die. And so my suggestion is that the way to untie this Gordian knot that has us inextricably uh, entangled with this fascist party is for congressional Democrats to take a Promethean approach to uh, come up with some federal policies that will make it easier for the blue states, progressive states, to pursue progressive agendas at the state level in which the at least federal policies and laws are not getting in the way. I know Tom doesn't like my repeal the federal income tax idea, but uh, for instance, uh, California itself tried to have a, a single payer health care but uh, program, but uh, of course you would have to, federal law would make uh, that you'd sacrifice all the Medicare payments that the citizens had paid in, and so it forces the state to start all over again from scratch, which is just undoable. So ironically. The federal policies that are progressive that we have, like Social Security and Medicare, kind of have us handcuffed to this fascist party because there's no way to sort those out. So we need to have a, find some way to let the state pursue the progressive agenda as, uh, as exuberantly as the fascist states are pursuing their agenda. Well, I appreciate your, your passion. I have actually in the House introduced the... Uh, state-based universal health care act, which allows waivers for states to develop a single pair. So it addresses exactly the issue that you're talking about, uh, which is that if California wants to do a single-payer system, they need the funding uh, that is currently going to Medicare or Medicaid. And the waiver bill that uh, I've introduced that has a lot of progressive support would allow them to do that. So 
we need to rally support for uh, the administration and others on the bill uh, to see it pass. Douglas in Dewey, Arizona, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I was wondering if there's any way we can put a policy in this Build Back Better and the, the infrastructure bill that was, you know, bipartisan. Um, the states that want to keep on, you know, doing voter suppression and sending their own electors, whether our guy wins or not, um, hold their, back their taxes uh, so that that way you encourage, like Senator Sinema from Arizona, which is doing the same thing that we're talking about. And I'll stand by and listen to your comment. Withhold federal funds. Hmm. Well, Doug, I, I, I believe that we ought to first pass voting rights, and voting rights, if we pass the voting rights law, there will be financial penalties for non-compliance, and it would be federal uh, enforcement. And so the bill is there. Uh, we just need to pass that. In, in terms of upgrade, I think you're talking about updating the Electoral Count Act or to make it clear that uh, you, you need to have the certified winner and state legislators sh shouldn't uh, overturn who the governor certifies. I do think it makes sense to look at that and upgrade, update that. Uh, so that it can't be manipulated uh, in the 24 election. John in Austin, Texas, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Okay, I'm looking at uh, the, the obstinance of the Republican Party. They're they're really not interested in doing anything. So, yeah, I, I preface I say all that as a preface to ask this: Why do why does the Republican Party continue to do things like uh, extend the debt ceiling? Uh, uh, past defense bills. I understand that these things in the mind of the Demo of the party itself and in the mind of politics need to be done. You mean but the Democratic Party, what point, John? Exactly. Yeah. I, my, my question is, why do we do these things? Because these things help Republicans, too. So why not play hardball? Because these guys are obviously uh, out of whack so far that something drastic needs to happen to get things that the American people need to move. So at what point do we stop doing these things like passing a defense bill that does nothing more than uh, enrich uh, weapons manufacturers and stuff like that? Why don't we take a stand, you know, on not passing a budget? And, and I understand it'll cause pain, and problems, but at some point we have to do something just as drastic as the things that they do on the. John, let's get an answer here. We're running out of time, Cong Congressman. Well, John, I I agree with you on the defense bill. I mean, the defense bill, which I voted against in committee, I was one of two people out of fifty some people who voted against it on the Armed Services Committee, uh, was providing the Pentagon and defense with twenty billion more than what. Uh, Biden won it. It's the highest spending since the Cold War at a time where we're pulling out of Afghanistan and uh, getting out of endless wars. And, and it's, you know, just to put it in context, 780 billion compared to 175 billion, which is what Build Back Better would be. So absolutely, we need more Democrats voting against those kind of colossal increases. Congressman Re uh, Representative Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, a national progressive town hall meeting taking your calls. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep Ro, R-O, Rep Ro Khanna. And welcome back, Congressman Ro Khanna, taking your calls for the hour. David in Columbus, Ohio, you are on the air with Representative Khanna. Hello, Representative Khanna. I appreciate all your good work, especially the um, ICBM Act, which is trying to take money from defense spending and put it into our COVID uh, treatment and uh, research. And I guess you could explain it better, but is it difficult to uh, redistribute funds like this? I, I, the defensive budget is way overblown. I think, uh, like you said, $20 billion they don't even need. So they could just take $20 billion and think what we could do with that. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's $20 billion more than the president wanted. Uh, it is uh, totally a uh, handout in many cases to defense contractors who are charging monopoly prices or have executives that have average salaries of $5 million. And then you look at the ICBM modernization. I mean, even people who are national security experts would tell you that of the triad, the uh, ICBMs, the ability to bomb with Air Force or uh, to bomb with use uh, bombs with submarines. 
the ICBMs are the most vulnerable. They're actually, you can take them out the most. So just for strategic reasons, it doesn't make sense to modernize them and put more money in them. There are a lot of other things you would put money in. Uh, the challenge for the Democrats, in my view, and progressives is to come up with a budget that shows we can actually do more to keep our country safe without spending the money on legacy industries that we are. Uh, and we, we still have to, to try to thread that needle. My understanding is that about half of the, uh, of the Defense Department's budget is, and the intelligence agencies also is now uh, privatized. It's now going to private entities, whereas you know, 50 years ago it, it didn't. I'm not talking about buying tanks and things like that. I'm talking about you know, like Ed Snowden. He worked for a private defense contractor. He didn't work for the NSA. Um, is that something that is being paid attention to? Tom, I didn't know it was that high. I, I, I think that's something we should uh, look into on the Armed Services Committee. But you're absolutely right to be concerned about the increasing role of defense contractors, partly because they don't come under uh, the same standards in terms of conduct overseas, and they don't have the same accountability. And so we definitely should get a handle on that. And I, I'm going to have people look into it. Okay. Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. You're on the air with Representative Connor. Hi. My question is about the minimum wage. There hasn't been any talk about it since the parliamentarians had blocked it. I was wondering if a congressman or any congressman would consider something that Hyman Minsky suggested 50, 60 years ago, which is that we have um, state and localities petition the government for help and projects and labor, and that we are, that the federal government hires people to do these projects, in essence, creating a guaranteed employment and also, in essence, creating what's called a floor wage. In other words, Congress could set the wage that, that the government would pay, and, that would, and therefore it would compete with private enterprises, and private enterprises would have to meet that floor. I mean, I think it'd be, it, it's a reasonable uh, proposal to do that with, meaningful projects, and I think infrastructure could be one with this bipartisan infrastructure bill that uh, our federal government uh, could require of the states that they set something that becomes the prevailing wage for work that needs to be done to build our roads, bridges, highways, and then that could become the competitive wage in the region. Michael in Greenville, South Carolina, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Thank you both gentlemen for this wonderful program and platform. Uh, not a got you question, Representative, but what is your salary? What is the congressional salary? Michael, it's public. It's 170000 Okay. Because of, I, I learned from this guy named Tom Hartman that Social Security is capped at what, 64000 No, it's 100, isn't it around 140000 now, Congressman? Yeah, I think the latest is 140,000, which I completely oppose. I mean, I think there you ought to be taxed. I mean, maybe you could have a, a donut between 140 and 250,000, but after 250,000, you ought to tax Social Security. And, uh, and our president makes 400,000 a year, and that is not all taxed for Social Security. So, what I'm proposing is. Uh, if you get paid by the government, shouldn't you pay into our social security? Well, I'm I'm all for. I think Senator Sanders' proposal is the two hundred fifty thousand. After two hundred fifty thousand, you scrap the cap, uh, and everyone else pays social security. I mean, if if, if you want to have members of Congress have to pay it uh, on all their salary, and the president, I'm for that too. I mean, I think that could be a good example. But the main thing to raise revenue is to make sure that people over 250000 are paying Social Security. Right now you could be earning $5 million and you're not paying Social Security tax on any of that. Which is uh, cr- above 130000 Right, which is just crazy. Suzanne in Dublin, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Yes, I just want to say thank you for all you do. And again, like the prior gentleman, I, I enjoy this platform tremendously. And I, I know you're a busy man. and But I just wonder, do you think that... Uh, 
the 2016 election went the way it did because the working people were angry at the Democratic Party because they turned their backs on them and said, I won't vote for you. I'm voting for a Republican. I think you're absolutely right that that played a big part of it. Was it the only cause? No, but I think we have to be honest. I mean, we, we had policies that shipped jobs offshore. We had policies that led to huge wealth concentration among a few and, and, and left out the, the, the working class. That's the decline and deindustrialization of rural America. Uh, and so, yes, people were angry and they were angry at sort of failed policies for decades. Mary in Las Vegas, <laughs> you're on the air with Representative Kana. Good morning, gentlemen. I was watching Lawrence Tribe, and he uh, suggests that the January 6th commission send a letter to the attorney general to, um, you know, to start um, uh, take, making a charge for conspiracy, and that we have right now, that he should start right now, not later, um, and have, you know, the FBI have a parallel investigation going on. Is there any way that you or... Any other of the Democrats can urge the commission to take this step? Mary, I completely agree with you and uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe. I, I have a lot of respect for the attorney general, but this is not the time uh, to be overly circumspect and not hold people accountable. We have to have some accountability for people who tried to subvert our democracy uh, and not think, oh, is this going to be too polarizing? We have to enforce the rule of law. So I... I uh, believe the commission should recommend uh, where there is criminal exposure for the Justice Department to start, and they need to pursue the law on this. And I, I, I agree with you. I agree with Trud. Nancy in McHenry, Illinois, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Yes, I remember during Clinton's administration, they put Karen or Sharon McDougal in jail for not complying with the investigation. Why don't they do that to this cast of characters we got now with? Bannon and, and all the rest. It was Susan McDougall, but yes. Actually, that may be the outcome. I mean, that we just had a, voted on criminal contempt for Meadows. I voted on criminal contempt for Bannon. It's gone to the Justice Department. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think they may uh, decide to cooperate. And, and you, you know, judge will not usually throw you in jail if you uh, decide to cooperate. But if they don't, uh, I, I think that they're going to face uh, very much criminal exposure that could include jail. Cliff in Cleveland, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, why not just uh, pass the Voting Rights Act again? The Supreme Court sent to Congress a message to, that if you want us to enforce it, pass it again. It doesn't make any sense to me to pass another voting rights laws that, that the Supreme Court won't uphold. I mean, they haven't upheld, upheld that. They haven't upheld the uh, Help America Vote Act. They, ha they won't uphold any law. So, so why bother unless you're going to make them enforce it? Thank you. I'll take any comments you have uh, in a minute. Well, my understanding of the legislation is it does enforce the voting rights act. Now, it goes beyond that in some ways in terms of uh, getting rid of uh, gerrymandering and getting rid of some of the uh, money in, 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 in politics, but uh, the Supreme Court could strike down parts of the law, uh, but still uphold the restoration of the Voting Rights Act. But the idea is that there's uh, fundamental reforms that we believe are constitutional, uh, and we should pass, uh, pass that version. Barbara in Chicago Heights, you're on the air with Representative yeah. Connor. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, Congressman Connor, for all that you do, but I have a concern that the fact that you guys keep running up against a brick wall with the Senate. So is there anything the progressives can do to try to get more senators in the Senate? Because that's what we keep running into a brick wall. It's not the it's not the House of Representatives. It's always the Senate. Barbara, I, I agree with you. And I think it's absolutely important to elect more progressive uh, senators and to try to get more progressives uh, in, in some of these uh, swing states. And I think they can win on a economically populist uh, agenda. Uh, uh, you know, and we're trying. I mean, the progressives have managed, managed to get, have a mark on the framework, but now it's for the president and the speaker who assured us that they would to get the Senate to, to pass the bill. Representative Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, taking your calls in a national progressive town hall meeting. 
here on the Tom Hartman program. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents 17th District of California in the U.S. House. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Anthony in Detroit, Michigan. You're on the air with Representative Khanna. Hello. I saw Representative Khanna on a program yesterday uh, expressing support for Julian Assange, which I really appreciate that. And so I wanted to follow up and ask if he could introduce a resolution in support of Assange. And he wouldn't have to do too much work because uh, former Representative Gabbard introduced one last session. I'm happy to look at it. And, and, and uh, I believe that the prosecution of Assange is a, a big mistake, as I expressed last night. Uh, I don't think uh, you have to defend Assange's actions, and I have problems with some of his actions of not redacting personal information and the timing of some of his releases. But the point is, you can't prosecute someone uh, for publishing information that they got from a source that they had no role uh, in actually engaging in illegal uh, activity to, to, to break into uh, classified information. If they're just a passive recipient and publishing it, that's has a chilling effect on, on journalists uh, across the country, and so the prosecution is overbroad, and I've conveyed that to the administration. I'll look for ways to, to making uh, an impact on it. Joe in Cupertino, you're on the air with your represent your congressman. Once again, happy holidays, Tom. Well, I noticed you were in town recently talking to some of the municipal uh, police chiefs. I really appreciate that. But on a bigger scale, I think local governments are becoming so large, they don't have accountability. The sheriff's department in our community is, uh, you know, it's a contentious issue about uh, getting a concealed weapons permit from an Apple corporation. And this is a, like a business. All of a sudden, law enforcement fueling defense attorneys and taking people that are homeless and making them a commodity. You go into the, uh, the, the incarceration system, and it's just this churn of churn. And these people are left to be like chum for vulture lawyers trying to, you know, make, here, you got to take this class. It's just a money scheme. I think if we could reduce the size of some of these bureaucracies and hold the people accountable or hold the departments accountable, can we do something to make accountability to the public that they serve as opposed to the business entities that are involved in the legal profession, whether they're lawyers or whether it's perpetuating more judges? It's less accountability. I just want to say that there are people sitting there right now in holding cells that have mental health issues, not criminal issues that are to the point where they're incarcerated for months on end, but mental health issues that we are not addressing. It really breaks my heart in a country like this where we give a sensitivity to like the law enforcement officer on trial right now for personal issues after she took the life of this innocent, or should I say not criminal person, but no accountability. And I think we as people need to make sure that we hold the people that represent us and hiring people that are qualified. To Joe, I, I think you've made your point. Let's get the answer here. Joe, this is exactly the conversation I had with the police chiefs and police officers. I thank them for their service. I understand it's a it's a risky job, but there needs to be 
uh, accountability, obviously, for, for, for police. And there needs to be, a, and one of the things was, which I found exciting is in, uh, in, in San Jose, they had created a separate category of people to address uh, mental health issues so that it didn't escalate into uh, the use of force. Uh, the challenge, though, is that we don't have enough funding for the mental health, uh, for beds, for people who need uh, treatment. We don't have enough funding for services. Uh, and so it has to be a holistic approach where we're funding those things uh, to actually make a difference in uh, keeping a community safe. Yeah. This also ties into the, the problem of, of houselessness, homelessness across America as well, and the, the mental illness component of that, sadly. Uh, there's so much to it. Uh, exactly, and a huge issue in, in uh, parts of the Bay Area. Yeah, and and up here in Portland as well. It's uh, the, the, These homeless encampments are just spot, popping up everywhere. Welcome back, Congressman Rokana taking your calls for the hour. Steve in Zimmerman, Minnesota. You are on the air with Representative Kana. Hi, good afternoon, Tom and Rokana. History has shown us over the time that the Supreme Court numbers have gone up and they've gone down. And there's been discussion about raising the amount. And my thinking is I would like to reduce the Supreme Court by the last three members that were added. What do you think? Well, that's a, a creative uh, a suggestion. Look, what I've proposed is uh, a, a term limits for justices, 18 years, and then they take senior status, which would still be constitutional because they would be judged for life. Uh, they just would have to go to an appellate court. The idea that, uh, you know, someone who was appointed in 1990, Clarence Thomas, at a totally different era, is making decisions for a democracy in 2020 was not uh, what our founding uh, intended. And the President's Commission also has recommended term limits as one way that forward. I, I think that's the most uh, likely uh, reform that can get uh, broad support. Of course, if decisions come out that are, uh, you know, galvanizing, you may you may see more support for, for other measures. Bob in Burlington, Vermont, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Actually down in Florida, Tom, but oh, okay. uh, it's more, more and more. Apparently your phone's in Burlington. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's become more and more apparent that Republicans only think that the defense bill is airplanes and aircraft carriers. Uh, Tom mentioned a, a statistic that was really stark early in the program comparing the number of deaths in China to the number of deaths in America for, for, versus the virus. Um, do we have an opportunity to start to look at the defense bill as a corporate welfare bill and maybe make inroads in that way? Thanks. Bob, I, I agree with you that we need to define national security more broadly to include uh, health security. I mean, when folks are thinking about what, what is affecting their security, their family security, right now, first thing that comes to their mind is, is COVID and pandemics, and that ought to be a national security issue. Climate uh, ought to be a national security issue. And then even when you come to traditional defense, uh, the aircraft carrier is one of the least effective things. If you care about sort of China and not uh, uh, having an invasion in Taiwan, the aircraft carrier is not going to prevent that. I mean, aircraft carriers are necessary towards the end of a, a long, prolonged battle. So we also have to rethink what actually are we investing in in a 21st century uh, national security environment that will keep us safe and not just uh, feed defense contractors because they're a legacy industry. Will in Salem, Oregon. You're on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, hi, hi, Tom and Representative Kana. Thank you for all you do. Real quick question. Um, I'm not looking for sympathy. I just want to lay out something very quickly. My wife and I are both over the, 60, over the age of 65, and we have a half a million dollars in student loan debt. $500,000. We're never going to be able to pay it off, obviously. We, we could live to be 300 years old, and they're never going to get their money. Would you be willing to sponsor legislation that that uh, that that wipes out student loan debt for I would like it for everybody obviously but at least for people 65 years and older. Yeah, no, I send me to my email. Uh, I can't give it to you on the air, but send me something about your wife's story on on my website. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sorry, that that's absurd to have that kind of debt. Uh, and I, I look, I'm for wiping out student debt. Uh, I'm on Warren's bill for anyone who makes under 150000 I just think they should be burned with this kind of debt. Uh, but I think for seniors, it's a it's a it's a good idea. I mean, you, if you still have debt at sixty five, I mean, it's awful, uh, and it's something that I can uh, certainly explore. Max in Clackamas, Oregon, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Hi, Congressman. Hi, Tom. Thanks to you both uh, for doing the show. Sure. Uh, Congressman, I desperately want to know the answer to this. It's a bipartisan bill that anybody could introduce, or maybe perhaps someone who has the ear of the president could suggest via executive order. We need a national holiday to commemorate January 6th. We have one. I mean, Patriot Day for 9-11, which is inappropriately named Veterans Day Memorial Day. How should we as Americans uh, remember, commemorate, ensure, never forget that January 6th uh, is not repeated? Fireworks, perhaps? I'd love to have your answer. Thanks for doing the show. I, it's an important suggestion. I mean, whether I don't know if we need a national holiday, but certainly something like we have of December seventh with Pearl Harbor, or something that commemorates uh, and honors uh, what what happened, uh, which was an attack on our democracy by our own citizens. I mean, it was a very serious uh, assault on America's fundamental principles, and I do think it ought to be uh, commemorated. It ought to be taught in in school, and uh, with the view that it should never be repeated. Nancy in Woodland, California. Yeah, um, you were talking earlier about conservative ownership of a lot of the media. So is, you don't think that we'll be able to reestablish the laws that limited how much media one person or entity can own? Thank this you. is pre-1996. Uh, uh, I mean, I think you mean the Fairness Doctrine. And, and yeah, she's talking the about other the, the Telecommunications Act of 96 allowed uh, giant corporations to, to, you know, to buy hundreds or thousands of radio stations. Before that, you couldn't do it. Yeah, well, I, I think maybe with Lena Khan and antitrust, I mean, we could look at the consolidation on that and if there needs to be revisions of the, those laws. Uh, but you're, you're, you're right to say that the concentration of the industry in the absence of sort of a uh, infrastructure for the left, I think, has created a huge problem. I was having breakfast with someone. I said if, if Biden could give the Gettysburg Address, if it's not getting to people in certain communities, it doesn't matter. And right. so there's a fundamental distribution of information issue. Yeah, it, it very much is. Congressman, uh, I, I see I've got like five seconds. So thank you so much for, for doing our program today. And, and uh, if we don't talk again before the holidays, I wish you the very, very happiest of holidays to you and your family. Thank you, Tom. Happy holidays to you and all your listeners and look forward to uh, being back on in the new year. There you go. Thank you very much. Representative Ro Khanna uh, with us, uh, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents California's 17th district. You can find his website at Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This book in the Tom Hartman Book Club is All Politics is Local, Why Progressives Must Fight for the States by Megan Winter. And this is from the introduction. On February 20, 2018, six days after 17 people were shot and killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Representative Keon McGee, a Democrat from Miami, stood on the floor of the Florida House of Representatives. Looking on from the gallery above were Parkland students who had traveled over 400 miles by bus to Tallahassee through the hope of persuading their state lawmakers to pass gun reforms in Florida. McGee asked the assembly to vote on a bill that would have banned assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith of Orlando, where a gunman had killed 49 and wounded another 53 people in the Pulse nightclub in 2016, had sponsored the bill whose chances would expire unless the House bent its usual protocol and acted right at that moment. The shooting at Parkland demands extraordinary action, McGee told the Assembly. He was trying a technical procedural maneuver, 
one that might have worked in an alternate reality without partisan politics. But everyone who understood what it meant that Republicans held a supermajority in the Florida Assembly knew what would come next. Richard Corcoran, the Republican Speaker of the House, interrupted McGee. A few minutes later, the House voted on a party lines, 71 to 36, not to consider the assault weapons ban. In the gallery, students began to cry. On Twitter, student leader Emma Gonzalez wrote, the anger that I feel right now is indescribable. Something unusual was happening. With their eloquence, temerity, and rage, the Parkland students had seized national attention. Major news networks and papers dispatched reporters to cover their calls for change. That week in February, even before knowing that hundreds of thousands of students nationwide would soon walk out of their schools and through the streets, the American public paid attention to what was happening in Tallahassee, Florida. And yet from another advantage, the scene in the Florida Capitol that day was not at all unusual. In state houses, it is not uncommon to watch someone sit before a panel of elected officials, hold up a placard of a dead child killed by opioids or lack of insurance or a gun, and plead for the passage of a bill that will inevitably not move out of committee because it does not fit within the political calculus of the Assembly's leadership. In those hearing rooms, ordinary people often share in breathtaking impotence. Three weeks before the Parkland students arrived in Tallahassee, for example, the Florida Senate Judiciary Committee discussed the Rule of Law Adherence Act, which would have required all local government officials, explicitly including employees of the state university system, to turn over information about immigrants to federal immigration officials. The bill was similar to those shopped around the country by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, an organization that since the 1970s has written experimental conservative state legislation. Alex's corporate members included Geo Group, the largest provider of detention services for immigration and customs enforcement, ICE, and a major donor to Florida Republicans in Donald Trump's presidential campaign. In 2016, the federal government decided to stop contracting with private prisons because the Department of Justice investigation had found they were unsafe. But after Trump's inauguration in early 2017, Geo Group received $774 million worth of contracts to run federal prisons. On January 30th, 2018, the day that the Florida immigration bill was considered in Tallahassee, so many people showed up that the hearing room reached capacity. Muslim students and Latino farm workers and their teenage children who had traveled hours to testify against the bill were not allowed into the packed room. Expressionless, they watched the proceedings on a television mounted in a hallway as Florida Senator Aaron Bean stood at the podium and said that his bill means criminals will be kept off the streets. The bill did not advance in what counts as a victory, in part because in 2011, immigrant rights groups staged weeks-long protests in Tallahassee to oppose a bill modeled after the Arizona's 2010 law that allowed police officers to ask for immigration papers if they suspected someone was undocumented. The Florida legislature didn't pass a new aggressive anti-immigration law until 2019, when it gave the state the power to sue local law enforcement that refused to detain people according to orders from federal immigration officials. The next day, January 31st, Floridians concerned about sea level rise arrived in Tallahassee by the busload to ask their legislators to pass a raft of proactive climate change bills. Many were college students or recent graduates who had grown up along the coast and understood that the window of opportunity for stalling climate change was rapidly closing. During their lifetimes, they told me, their hometowns would be radically altered, if not sunken. By the end of the legislative session that March, none of the bills they wanted were passed. Even though just 10 years ago, it was all but mandatory for both Democrats and Republicans in Florida to at least make overtures about the need for proactive environmental laws. Similar scenes play out in hearing rooms across the country, usually unrecognized by the American public. Beneath the tumult of the Trump presidency, state lawmakers have largely kept their course. As Alex's own website explained in 2017, quote, state legislatures around the country have made significant progress passing bills on issues such as immigration, policing, and health care, even as Republicans in Congress and President Trump have struggled to make similar progress at the federal level, end of quote. After decades of state-based campaigns coordinated by libertarian and Republican operatives and disinvestment in the states, right-wing politicians have swept control of state houses. All politics is local. Robert in Clearwater, Florida. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind? Yeah, I was just wondering about the coverage of what's happening in the state of Florida. 
you know, a couple of months ago, back when the Syrian, the vaccination first started, and uh, our governor, DeSantis, hosted uh, all his rich friends in Palm Beach County, and they got their COVID shots. You know, they flew in on their private jets. Yep. And I just would like to know where those jets came from. I would get the manifest from it. You know, and they came, they came from all over the United States, didn't they? And a few of them came from overseas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this was but, this was early on, and DeSantis was uh, making the vaccine available to anybody who wanted it. Uh, you know, including people from out of state at a time that other states were just providing them to their citizens. And you know, I, I think he was just you know shouting out to his rich donors. Yeah, I know, but the thing about it is, I wanted to know how many came from Texas and Louisiana. Yeah. I, you know, I doubt we'll ever have access to that information, Robert, but you raise a really good question. And as a citizen of Florida, I'm guessing this is very much top of mind for you. Thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you, Robert. Richard in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? First off, happy holidays, Tom, to Thank you, you. Back at and you. all of yours and your wonderful staff. And most importantly, all of your listeners, mm-hmm. you were asking the question if there's anything that you might have said in the conversation you had with Anthony. And I feel there was a, uh, a glaring omission on your part in that conversation that you could have pursued. And that would be when once it was established that uh, he hadn't had the vaccination and was apparently not going to get the vaccination, you should have asked him, then you're certainly getting tested regularly, aren't you? Because you care about your family, you care about your, you care about the people out there, you care about knowing whether you have COVID. Are you getting tested regularly? Yeah. What I've found in my debates with my political debates with people over the last two decades, I mean, you know, I've been doing this show for 18 years, um, is that when I'm debating with conservatives, the most effective way to get them to pay attention to an issue is to talk about them, to put it in the context of them and their own lives. When I'm debating with liberals, the most effective way to get them to pay attention is to put it in the context of the people they love, the people around them, which is what you're suggesting. And I think that would have been a very, very strong way to take on a progressive who, uh, or a liberal who was concerned, you know, who was afraid of getting vaccinated, you know, uh, worry about the people around you. But I've, I, my experience has been that conservatives will give lip service to that, but really at the end of the day, they're most worried about themselves. What I'm talking about here is not specifically your message to Anthony mm-hmm. one-on-one that you might be having in a private conversation. You have a vast audience who is also taking in the conversation. That's a good point. Who can use it, can use that right. strategy, use yeah, that to role model a strategy. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Richard, that's, a, that's an excellent point, and I, and I should have considered that. Um, Happy holidays to all of you. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, nice to hear from you, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. I mean, exactly how do you do this? How do you, how do you share with people what could kill them? I mean, just, just uh, I had wanted to share with you a little earlier, and I'll do it here at the, at the very end of the show. We're, we're uh, down to about the last two minutes. Um, the writing. Uh, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, thewriting.com is a website that, you know, where the, uh, in fact, the, the guy who runs this has been on our program a number of times. His name is Howard. I forget his last name. And um, every day I get this newsletter and it shows me what the right wing in America is talking about. And there's kind of some good news here. This, uh, the National Review has a headline today, uh, Capital Riots Happened Because Trump Lied. Oh, really? Are they starting to wake up? Uh, over at Newsmax, Michael Reagan, Ronald Reagan's uh, son, the, the adopted son, as opposed to Ron uh, Jr., his natural son. Not that, I, not that it makes a big difference, but that's how people often differentiate them. But in any case, Michael Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan's son, uh, the headline at Newsmax, I'm begging Trump not to run in 2024. And so that seems like a good start. On the other hand, if you go over to Fox News, the headline is Liz Cheney is lying to you about January 6th. This is from Tucker Carlson. So the texts that Liz Cheney read about aloud were a tribute to the people who wrote them. But because she is a liar, Liz Cheney attempted to twist these texts in a proof of some kind of conspiracy. Right. And then 
over at Newsmax, Tucker Carlson's Putin play mirrors Hitler appeasement. What's going on here? Is, is the right starting to eat their own? Dick Morris, you know Dick Morris, right? He's an old Fox guy. Fox, quote, Fox News' lead host, Tucker Carlson, is behaving like the discredited appeasers of Adolf Hitler in the prelude to World War II. Something's going on. I think a big shakeup is happening in right-wing world. Although only two Republicans voted to hold Mark Meadows in contempt, I still think a shakeup is happening. We'll uh, continue following this and keep you up to date. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.